Welcome once again to Benchworld, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund an Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, so thank you so much for being today with us. Today we have Daniel Vallejo, co-founder of ADI. So thank you for being today with us, Daniel. No, thank you guys for everything. And thank you Hector, for the invitation. Great to be here. No, it's it's a pleasure having you. So let's start with the fire chat. So why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I'm Daniel at a personal level, uh, born and raised in Cali, Colombia. More professional level, I'm an economist by training. So I studied economics in Bogota, Universidad de los Andes. And I did the beginning of my professional career in the very much of a corporate world. So I worked a little over four years at McKinsey and Company out of the Bogota office, focused on consumer banking in the region. And then I worked for a couple of years in a private equity fund called Southern Cross Group. They actually have an operation in Mexico as well. Uh, and more lately, as of the end of 2018, I co-founded Adi with two co-founders, Santiago and Elmer. And without getting too much into details, uh, because this might be for later, at Adi, what we do is that we boost digital commerce in Latin America. So we enable merchants to offer various and different services to their end clients with the ultimate goal of increasing their sales. Uh, and lastly, I'll say I, I'm, I've been married for three years and I have a 19-month-old son. So if you hear screams in the back or anything, it's just my son running around. Well, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Daniel. It's, it's mm -hmm. great having you. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your path? How did you become an entrepreneur? And also, how do you like it? Do you like it or not? Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with the second question first. Uh, do I like it or not? Yes, I definitely like it. Um, I'll say, however, that entrepreneurship, uh, I usually say is very much like Instagram. People only see the picture when you just raised a great equity round or when you just got to an interesting operational milestone. But the day-to-day -day hustle and grind of getting there is a little less, less sexy than what it seems. Um, and let me tell you a little bit of how I got here. So I would say since the get-go, since, since, since undergrad studies, I have always been, have always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. I had a couple of projects during, during undergrad regarding entrepreneurship. One of them was an incredibly uh, unsuccessful frozen pizza delivery business. Um, but to get a little more, a little more serious going forward, since the time I was at McKinsey and at Southern Cross, there was one element that was always missing for me and what it was getting to the execution. So 
in consulting, you usually finish your job or your project when you design a solution. And in private equity, what usually happens is that, yes, you design a solution and you try to help or guide a management team to implement it. But it's never your neck uh, on the line or it's never yourself that is 100% accountable for that solution to be implemented. So I would say that on the one hand, I had a big driver that was, how do I go from design and advice to actually execution? And the second element, which is really important, is that throughout my years in consulting and uh, my later years in private equity, I had, I had always been really opinionated about how companies should be run, how teams should be run, how projects should be conducted. Uh, and I always thought that I had a good idea or various good ideas about how you could do things better. So there was, there's also an element of, well, now it's the moment to put your money where your mouth is and actually take the plunge into the high-risk world of you being accountable for your, for your actions. So those two elements together uh, actually made, made me take, take the decision. Um, I started Adi right out of McKinsey. So my path has not been as linear as I, as I told you. So I did three years at McKinsey. Then I worked in private equity. Then I went back to McKinsey. Um, and then at that point, I, 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 was, I was already kind of uh, ready to make that decision. So that's a little bit about my path and how do I like it? I like it a lot. Um, some days more than others. It's, it's, it's a very interesting roller coaster. I think that the more time I spend on it, the less volatile the cycle is and you start having a little more a little more experience uh that helps you take the lows not so lows and the highs not so highs uh but it's definitely less sexy than what you see in the newspaper and the press releases about a company raising money yeah i, I agree with you and obviously the sexiest part is when you see the people raising capital and yep. you guys you have done a, a, a fantastic job raising capital from terrific VC funds, not only from LATAM, such as Monashis, but also uh, global VC funds, such as Quona, that focus on fintech, and Andreessen Horowitz, it's the, one of the top VC uh, funds globally. So as, as you think in capital, obviously capital is the blood for any startup. So how do you prepare for any capital raising process? That's, that's an interesting question. I think that there are two things that we have done regularly and methodically to prepare for a capital raise process that are pretty um, concrete, if you will, and structural to each raise. And there are more uh, case by case things. So the, the structural items for me are twofold. First, you need to figure out what your evolution so far has been and to be more concrete, how your execution and growth compares to what you said in the previous round that you would do with the money you raised in the past. So it's a much better and more compelling story if you get to investors saying, listen, uh, it's actually October, 2020 now, uh, we raised money 12 months ago with the following milestones. And this is how we have executed against those milestones. So I would say that that is item number one, getting your story straight in terms of how you have performed and especially how that compares to what you quote unquote promised in the past. I would say that is element number one and that goes a long way. And the second piece, which is element number two is being compelling and also realistic about 
what is going to happen in the future. Um, therefore, me, you have kind of two pieces to that, to that second element. Piece number one is the long-term vision. And when you think about the long-term vision here, you have to be ambitious. Ambitions in terms of projections, ambitions in terms of product development, in terms of impact. Where do you really want to be as a company in, in five years time where everything to go right? And I think it's not, not as easy an exercise as you think, uh, because at some point you ask yourself, wow, am I actually uh, blowing my own horn and telling the too rosy of a story? And I think the answer there is always no. Um, you got to really believe your story, but you got to go out there to the market and tell the best version of the story you can. And then the second piece for fundraising, when you think about the future, is getting much more concrete because the five-year plan is really interesting and very important when, when investors think about their returns. Uh, but they also want to know what you want to do with their money. You are raising X million dollars today. What will those X million dollars buy you? Until when will they last? Will they last for 12 months? Will you need an, a next round? Won't you need a next round? So being really clear about what that money buys you uh, is for me the second, the second piece of that, of that future element that is really important. And those two things, I think, I think we've, done, we've done pretty well, actually. Um, and then you have a couple of elements that are more on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, and it's to prepare the process correctly. Whenever you think about going out and raising money, uh, I compare it a lot to going out and raising debt. This is not a poetic art that happens kind of without preparation. You need to really prepare the process. Who do you want to talk to? Why do you want to talk to them? How, much, how long is the process going to last? When do you want to receive term sheets? When are you going to make a decision? That um, item of running the process actually generates a ton of momentum. Uh, it's very different getting to a fund, having a great pitch, and then saying, oh, yeah, you know what? Let's talk again in whenever in the next two months. I'm not that much of a hurry. Then if you get to a fund, you have a great pitch, and then at the end, you're like, you know what, uh, we're running a tight schedule here. We're running a tight ship. We're finishing our outreach process in two weeks. We are expecting term sheets from interested parties in three weeks. That completely changes uh, momentum and you create scarcity value. So I would say that that third piece, which is more case by case, depending on the round, depending on, on the context, is much more about how you run that process. Okay. But let's start with the beginning. At the very beginning, you have an idea in order to solve a problem. So you don't have traction, you don't have anything on the table. So how do you raise the first round? Um, how do you raise the first round? Um, I think there are three things that are critical to raise the first round. Um, first and foremost for the first round, it's 100% in my view about the team. You have to be able to get to those investors with a really compelling story and a very compelling argument of why you as a company and you as a team will win in that market. And yes, that piece is about convincing them that you have a good idea, but a little more deeply, it's about convincing them that you have a great team. Like I would say VC investors for a seed round will take a great team over a great idea any day of the week. So it's definitely about convincing about the team. That, that I would say is item number one. Item number two is 
bring as much uh, track record as possible to the table. The first big question mark that 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 the big VC fund will have at that point is, all right, let's suppose we like the team. Let's suppose it's an interesting idea. How risky is it that this team can actually execute? They come off from a great school. They have good experience in the corporate world, et cetera. Have they ever done this before? And how do we de-risk the piece of um, the execution question mark? So if you're able to bring to the table, let's call it pre-market fit revenue. Let's call it initial clients. Let's call it a working prototype. Whatever it is within your business that demonstrates traction and reduces the volatility of that execution risk that will give uh, much more comfort to those VC investors. So for me, it's one about the team. Second about if you can actually show them a little bit of traction. So you de-risk um, the execution piece. And the third part is about the size of the market you're pursuing. Um, VC investments by themselves are high risk game, high risk, high return game. Uh, Investors really want that return to be quote unquote uncapped and for you to be playing in a market that will not be small enough to cap your growth in the either shorter or near term. Um, you guys, I think, have a have an advantage, uh, which is that you, you, you live in a country that has a ton of markets uh, and verticals that are already gigantic. For many other countries in Latin America, the question about the total addressable market within one geography, it's a little tougher. Um, right now I'm speaking to you from Sao Paulo. So we have like our company based in Colombia. Uh, we were focused in Colombia for the first 16 months of existence. We are now opening a Brazilian operation. We are convinced that there's a huge opportunity here. Um, and the Colombian market is a, is a little smaller than Mexico for sure. So it's about for me team, how can you de-risk the execution piece? And the third part, be sure to be playing in a market in which the market size is not going to be a limitation for growth in the short term. Okay. And as you progress, you will be raising the next round and most probably it's going to be the Series A. Are there any milestones or are there any know, drivers, criteria that BC Fund uses in order to measure companies for the Series A? Yeah, so I think there are. Uh, let's caricaturize it like this. When you're, when you're thinking about pre-Series A, let's talk about the different kind of seed rounds that you can have. Those are rounds that can actually come pre-product, pre-revenue. That's a PowerPoint, two cats and a dog, and you go to wherever the investor lives and you tell your story. And that's a lot about what you did in the past. And that's a lot about how you deliver um, your story. It, it can take different forms. You can actually have revenue and raise a seed round, but pre-Series A, you can actually do it without revenue. When you get to the point where you say you're raising a Series A, there are, in my mind, kind of two kinds of hurdles. First hurdle is you already need to have some kind of product market fit and some kind of revenue. So you need to have a working prototype that has actually generated traction with your clients. Raising a Series A without a product, unheard of. Racing a Series A without client traction, unheard of as well. Um, so that you have to have. The second piece, which is a little, I think, more volatile or fluid is what have to be your actual traction numbers. Um, if we were thinking about 
many funds in the U.S., for example, say the famous metric of um, ARR, annual run rate. So taking your last month's revenue and annualizing it uh, has to be over the $1 million uh, threshold. I think that that is one fluid and, and, and it can move here and there. And second, uh, it's a little different for our region. Uh, so I'd say that if you have traction, you can show significant traction in a short time frame. And you can show ARR is uh, over 500K, 750. Uh, you're already in a spot in which you can actually start thinking about, should I go to the market right now? And is it easier to raise a subsequent round? Let's say, for instance, is it easier to raise a B round, a C round in comparison with the, with the previous round? Hey, is that for fundraising, especially when it comes from an entrepreneur, um, I am really hesitant to tell you that there is a golden recipe or a silver bullet. Most of us talk from what has actually worked for us. And that by no means is the definition of the right answer or of the correct alternative. It's just one additional and different way to get to fundraising. So, uh, and sorry, sorry, I was just complimenting saying that when it comes to fundraising, whatever we entrepreneurs have had as past experience and share as the silver bullet, I'm really hesitant to call a silver bullet or a perfect recipe. It's just different manners to get to a raise. Uh, if there were other people here on the line, they would be telling you about their experience. So in my view, it's much more about, yes, get product traction and talk to as many entrepreneurs as you can. The one thing we can tell you for certain is what has not worked for us. Because what has worked for us is just a combination of many fails, 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 fails success. That doesn't mean it's the only answer or the right answer. It's just one way to get the solution. So talking about failures, what are the key mistakes entrepreneurs do when they raise capital? Oof. What are the key mistakes when raising capital? Hmm. Um, so uh, I divide that. One is, let's start with the team piece, people piece, and then we can go into how you sell your business. Um, on the team piece and people piece, the, the, one, the one big mistake I see a lot with companies and, 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 and pitches that, that get to us is that there is not a consolidated and definitive leadership team in the idea or company they are pushing. I see a ton of situations in Latin America, especially in Latin America, where it's a little different, in which you have the quote-unquote founder, quote-unquote future CEO that has yet to leave a current job, that will not leave a current job, that is just looking for a hired CEO, et cetera. I think that it's not that it's wrong. There's a ton of examples of people that have done it right like that. It's just much harder, much harder to play the, if you will, uh, traditional venture capital uh, route when you are not fully committed to the idea. So I'll warn you, this is not a mistake. This can be uh, a great idea for different types of investors. I think that you, if you're pursuing if you will, Silicon Valley venture capital funds, it's going to be really hard. Uh, so mistakes on the team side are, are one big piece of it. And the second, the second area in which I see a, a ton of hesitation right now is that trade-off and balance that people try to strike between profitability and growth. Um, 
And if we were having this conversation six months ago, I would be saying that people are overly focused on growth, uh, growth at any cost, growth at any expense, unprofitable, unsustainable growth. And this is much more of a personal uh, view, but I think that is, that is not, that increases the risk of you guys building a sustainable endeavor in the long term. It will get you better traction numbers in the short term, but there is a ton to be to, to be discussed around the trade-off between growth and profitability. And I'm saying this right now because I think that with um, last year's developments, if you will, what happened with WeWork, a couple of different situations that have happened with Latin American companies that had raised a ton of money um, and were not able to scale that has actually brought to the table in the conversation between entrepreneurs and VC funds much earlier, the trade-off between, between profit and growth. So be really, really uh, clear and dialed in into where you are in that curve with your company. Uh, is profit something that you're looking at right now? Is it something that you are not looking at right now? There is not a perfect answer, but having a really clear answer to that question and a path onto how you are going to look at that trade-off in the future, for me is critical. And I don't see that happening very often. You used to talk about US investors and Latin investors. Mm -hmm. Is there any difference raising capital, let's say from a Brazilian VC fund or any other Latin VC vis-a-vis an American US-based fund? So, so I would say that the answer there is it depends and this is going to be my, my easy way out, but I'll tell you a little more about it. So um, in terms of the nature of the investor, uh, when you're talking about the top Latin American funds, I think they do a job and the due diligence and are looking at trends, patterns, and signals really similar to whatever uh, Silicon Valley funds are looking at. So um, the, the big VC funds of the region, Monashis, Kasik, uh, and funds like that, in my view, uh, have a process that is actually much more similar to, to US-based funds. The big difference there is that if those funds have a regional mandate, then you have uh, dynamics that change a little, right? Well, number one, they know the region much better than the potential US-based funds may know the region. US-based funds, uh, especially venture capital funds, were US-focused for a very long time before they opened, they opened, if you will, the, their investment mandates. And they started actually investing in Latam very recently. Uh, so I think that when you're talking about generating a shift in the geographical mandate or bread and butter for a fund, you have kind of that additional bar that you have to meet. In terms of why would I not invest as a fund in the next startup that comes out of California, New York, Florida, whatever, and would I go into a country that I don't know, uh, that I don't know legislation, currency risk, political risk, etc. So I would say that that is the only difference that I find when talking about those top funds. Then, if you think about other investment or um, yeah, other investment vehicles in the region, uh, differences are much bigger. Talk about family offices, talk about debt funds, talk about, uh, if you will, multi-mandate asset managers, their differences are, are much wider, if you will. And as you decide between 
one phone and the other. Are there any criteria that you use as an entrepreneur to get the money from one vis-a-vis -vis the other? Yes, I think there are criteria you should use and criteria you should not use. So let's suppose you have a couple of term sheets on the table and the capital is actually going to get to your company or your project. I would encourage you a lot if valuation differences are not kind of in the orders of magnitude space to not optimize for valuation. I think this is something that you realize only afterwards, but optimizing for valuation at that point, I think is the wrong um, decision. You should be thinking about whom of these potential investors will bring to the table better tools and alternatives for your project or company to scale faster. Have these investors been involved in the space? Do they actually know the space in another region? Are they more hands-on or more hands-off? How is your relationship with a partner that is managing the investment? Those are questions that I think are move the needle, should move the needle much more than marginal valuation differences by far. Okay, interesting. And, and the same question, but more in terms of the asset class. When do you choose to use, let's say, equity vis-a-vis -vis other type of funding, such as, I don't know, maybe venture debt that is kind of similar to mezzanine finance or any other type of instrument? So I, I would say that for the, I'm gonna be really honest, for the first couple of rounds, it's not going to be like us sitting here and figuring out which is the lowest cost of capital and optimizing our balance sheet. It's gonna be who's gonna put the money. Uh, it's not like you're gonna have term, various term sheets from VC funds and then you're gonna have venture debt funds and you're gonna have corporate debt as well. That, that, that is unlikely to happen. I'm not saying it, it won't, uh, hopefully it will, but it's unlikely to happen. So at the beginning, I would say uh, it's gonna most likely be equity. That's step one. I'll give you a couple of specific examples, for example, from Ali. So we at Ali, uh, we are credit originators. And this is a business that does not scale if you don't have debt, like by definition. This is a capital intensive business, we need to have debt. Uh, very early on, we went down the route of pursuing a, a, structured, a structured debt facility with US investors mainly. Uh, and that was a debt decision not based on oh, yes, it's going to be a little cheaper because, yes, it's going to be cheaper. But it's like this was for us core to show our investors that we were able to raise um, debt money for our business to scale. Let alone cost of funds without debt money, this business was unviable or isn't viable in the long term. So we pursued the debt route. Yes, the cherry on top of the cake is obviously cost of funding and less dilution, et cetera. But for us, the biggest part of it was that this was a, a sine qua non. We needed to have debt capital to show our investors that we were able to scale. Uh, I've seen various startups scale in the region, not tapping into capital markets or venture debt markets up until they are four or five years old. Having said that, um, I would definitely encourage you to think about the venture debt piece, especially when you get into your college series, post series A, when you're raising, that might be a really interesting way to extend your runway with less dilution um, and try to get to profitability faster with less funding rounds. 
Um, is it easier or faster doing the negotiation process for venture debt vis-a-vis -vis preferred equity? Um, I, I don't think so. If, if the situation, so if, if the conditions are given, the answer is yes. What do I mean by the conditions are given? Venture debt investors are not in the business of bridging you to nowhere. So if you are at the point where your company has few months of runway, there is no way to raise equity and you think venture debt is going to make the trick, that is most likely the moment in which you will not be granted venture debt because the conditions are not given. Venture debt investors are in the business of topping off your already existing liquidity and balance sheet with a, with a different kind of tranche. So if the conditions are not given uh, and you are running out of money, venture debt will not be an option and it will be harder and it's gonna be a painful process. If the conditions are given and you have recently raised, you have various quarters of runway, et cetera, then the process can actually be easier. And not easier, faster, because their diligence is very different than, than equity investors' diligence. Remember, the, the sky is the limit for an equity investor's diligence. For In the debt business, uh, payoffs are completely, completely asymmetrical. In the best of the world, you get your coupon and in a semi-bad scenario, you lose your shirt. So due to diligence is completely different. Okay. And obviously, as, as you pointed out, you have debt investors, you have equity investors. What's your recommendation to, first of all, get to know the investors and build the relationship and manage those relationships in the long run? So I'll say, I think two things are, are are very important. One, try to look and emulate what other companies in the space of yours are doing. So we at Ali do point of sale uh, credit originations. There are huge companies in the world like Affirm, Klarna, Afterpay that are doing this. Figuring out who they had worked with, how they had proceeded, how they had approached them, etc., goes a really long way. Uh, and contact those people, contact those folks. If any of you are starting a point of sale originator in Mexico and wants to contact us to figure out how we talk to investors, please do so. Uh, that is definitely something that I would encourage you to do because then you get to the first conversation with potential investors and the context you have is just much, much wider. So first, first tip in my head uh, for getting to, to investors table is talk to people that have gone through the process before, hopefully in the space that you are trying uh, to, to start a company in. That is item number one. Item number two is reach out to these people. Like, yes, most likely eight of 10 emails will not be answered, but the only way in which no email will be answered is if you send no emails. So thinking that this is impossible and that people are not accessible, et cetera, that, that's just not right. It, get out there, send emails, uh, send a ton of emails, be insistent, um, and try to build those relationships. For me, that's, that's item number two. And item number three, right now in the region and in the US itself, these acceleration programs are just booming. Call it Village Global, call it Y Combinator, call it the different uh, accelerate MasterCard Star Path. There are various platforms that try to launch startups and prepare them for their uh, funding raises. Uh, I would encourage you if you don't have the relationship with those funds to participate in one of those. They are really, really helpful. Okay, okay, that's a, that's a very nice piece of advice. Thank you. 
so in terms of a lot of entrepreneurs, as you pointed before, you need to prepare yourself. And, and, and as you prepare yourself, you need to come up with a financial model, especially in later runs. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they fear finance and they fear preparing and building the financial forecast and the financial model. What's your recommendation for those type of entrepreneurs? Oh, you got to lose the fear. Um, no, I, I, so twofold the recommendation. I, I think that like in, in the nitty gritty, who actually formulates the Excel is highly irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. Having said that, what really matters is that you actually master what is in there. I don't care if you wrote it there or not, but you have to be able to answer the why questions. Answering the how numbers add is the easy part, but why will you grow at a 50% clip on the second half of 2021? That goes much, that goes beyond whatever the Excel formulation is. It's just, you have to be able to answer what's the market opportunity? Uh, what is it that you're doing differently that you're growing faster, et cetera. So in terms of what the Excel says, uh, I think that building it yourself is a great way to be able to answer these questions. And I myself have a big uh, fixation on trying to build those myself because it helps me answer questions for myself. That's kind of the way how I operate. But I've seen many people very, um, very thorough on the preparation of, of, of fundraising rounds that do not build their models themselves. And that's fine. You just have to be able to answer the why questions for every single piece of your projection. Why are you growing headcount? Why are you not growing headcount? Why is marketing spend growing? Uh, where are you going to spend that money? Is it digital marketing? Is it something else? Those are the questions that actually matter. Okay, got it. Are there, only, are there any other critical steps uh, that, that, you need, that someone needs to consider as they raise capital? I would emphasize to have mastery on everything related to the market. And what do I mean by this? Your competition. What do they do? What are you going to do differently? That is, I think, uh, the, the question of why will you win against the competition is one that you should know in various languages and various forms. Uh, I think that as an entrepreneur, you always think that you have the answer to that question on day one. And that's why you actually had a good idea because it's better than the competition, et cetera. But that question has a ton of different levels. It's not only why your product is better. So then the answer the question is, how are you going to distribute it better? How are you going to be more efficient merchandising it or marketing it? That question has to be incredibly well answered. That is going to be um, the main question that people will ask you in 10 different ways. I would definitely encourage you to read as much as you can from the big investors that you follow. I'll give you a concrete example. Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz was pretty regular on his blog posts uh, until recently. And he has various blog posts that have become like gold standard in Silicon Valley. Um, and this is just one example. There are, many of, 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 there are many of those investors that write on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, either posts, medium, Twitter, follow them, figure out what they value, read their books, et cetera. There's a great, a great um, post from Mark Andreessen called The Idea Maze. Uh, start reading things like that. 
those really help you understand how these guys think and these gals think. That's great, wonderful, thank you. Any final recommendation, Daniel? Any final recommendation? Um, no, I, I, I'd say that, that that's, that's it. I, I'd say that think twice, three times, four times, and five times if you actually want to take the plunge into entrepreneurship. I think right now in the region, especially Mexico is a big example, we are only seeing huge successes. Last month, Carlos Julio Atcava became the first unicorn in Mexico. Uh, great entrepreneur, incredible company. They have an amazing operation, etc. The guys from Confi, a ton of people raising a ton of money. And that uh, only adds to the quote-unquote glamour of being an entrepreneur and raising VC money. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that raising VC money should be your definition of success, nor our definition of success. Raising VC money is just a means to trying to scale a business. Uh, it can be friends and family money and you go a different route and you grow a little slower, but become profitable a little faster. So really take a deep thought of what are the trade-offs in the entrepreneurship world that you are actually committing to when you decide to raise or not raise. And if you raise who you raise from, um, Nowadays, it, it, it seems like the only right, right, right answer is I'm going to raise from Silicon Valley funds and I'm going to go on TechCrunch and do my interview. I think that is, by, that is not right at all. Uh, and how much money you raise uh, or we raise should not be the North Star or the success metric. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel Vallejo, founder of Adi, for being no, today with you. us.